If you would please turn with me today to the book of John. Once again, we're going to go back to our study of the Gospel of John, where we have seen this theme again and again, life in Jesus, the Son of God. And in last week's message, we looked at God's great love that is shed for us, shed abroad in our hearts and shed abroad in the world through His Son, Jesus Christ. And here at the end of John 3, we're going we're to make it to the end of John 3 today and see the exaltation of Jesus above all else, and specifically through the ministry of one man that we have encountered before. In John chapter 3, look down if you would with me at verses 22 through 36. We'll read these together. After these things, Jesus and his disciples came into the land of Judea. And there he remained with them and baptized. Now John also was baptizing in Anon near Salem because there was much water there. And they came and were baptized, for John had not yet been thrown into prison. Then there arose a dispute between some of John's disciples and the Jews about purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who is with you beyond the Jordan to whom you have testified, behold, he is baptizing and all are coming to him. John answered and said, A man can receive nothing unless it has been given to him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. He who has the bride is the bridegroom. But the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is fulfilled. He must increase, but I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth is earthly and speaks of the earth. He who comes from heaven is above all. And what he has seen and heard and and that he testifies and no one receives his testimony. He who has received his testimony has certified that God is true. For he whom God has sent speaks the words of God. For God does not give the spirit by measure. The uh, The father loves the son and has given all things into his hand. He who believes in the son has everlasting life. He who does not believe the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for its power to change our lives because it's not just words on a page. It is the very word of God revealed to us through your Holy Spirit. And Lord, today we ask that you would use your Holy Spirit in our hearts, that you would take the words of God, that you would use them like the rock that breaks the hammer, the, the hammer that breaks the rock to pieces that you would work in our hearts and lives today. For God, surely in our lives there are things that we have held on to that we know we should get rid of. There are those who wrestle with eternity, who harden their heart against you. Lord, we ask today that you would show them the love and grace of Jesus Christ. Would you show us all today that you are above all, that you are first and foremost, that you are our Savior. May we walk out of this place different than we came in because we have heard the truth of your word proclaimed and you have applied it to our hearts. Lord, give us the courage, the boldness, the grace to respond to your word today. In your name we pray, amen. Understanding your purpose for why you do what you do is a vital thing. When we lose or we forget our purposes as individuals, as organizations, as churches, or teams, or or anything else, 
we end up somewhere in the weeds, chasing all the wrong things and wondering what happened. I read a story uh, this week about a man uh, who was planning a church. And when he went to plant the church, they went to a a town, um, and there was a YMCA there. How many of you know that YMCA stands for Young Men's Christian Association, right? It was started way back when with a very missional purpose. And so when they went to the YMCA, um, he asked the people there, you know, we're looking for a place to plant a church, and we'd like to rent out the building here. And they said to him, well, we don't have anything to do with churches. Now, there's a place that has gotten off of their mission statement, right? They lost, over the years, something changed. They lost the purpose for why they did what they did. Many a company organization has began as one thing, only to change later, and they create within themselves inconsistencies with the original stated mission statement or goals. When we turn to John chapter 3, we're, we're in this, second, or this, this last part of the chapter, we've come across a man we've talked about before. His name is John the Baptist or John the Baptizer. John the Baptist was an incredibly popular and powerful minister in his day in the nation of Israel. Understand that that people came from all over Israel to see this wild man who was out in the desert preaching the things of God, proclaiming a message of repentance. And now in John 3, we see the landscape of ministry in Israel is shifting and changing. No longer is John the only minister people come to hear. In fact, many of his followers, he's losing many of them, because they're going to hear a new minister who's preaching. His name is Jesus. And if John lost focus on his intended purpose and goal, he could easily become consumed with winning back those ones who are now flocking away from him. But instead, John emphatically reiterates his life's and his ministry's purpose. That is this, the exaltation of Jesus. That's why John did what he did. That's what he was called to do, and we see that in the passage today. And what we take away from this is this, that our purpose in this life is found in knowing Jesus, obeying him, and living for his glory. That is the greatest purpose that you will ever find because it's the purpose we were designed for as God's very personal creation. You were designed to know Jesus Christ. You were designed to obey him and to live for the glory of his kingdom. And, and, and because of our sin, we are broken and separated, but Jesus came to redeem us, that we can live out that purpose in him. So let's look at this passage today and see a few things about it and what it teaches to us and where we live today. The first thing we see in verses 22 through 24 is we see the transition of ministry that is taking place uh, here in the life of Jesus and in the life of John. In verse 22, we see that after these things, Jesus and his disciples came to the land of Judea, and there he remained with them and baptized. The events here in verse 22, they pick up sometime after Jesus' time at Jerusalem in the Passover and his, and his interaction with Nicodemus. In John chapter 2, at the end of John chapter 2, when Jesus has cleansed the temple at the Passover, he then stays in Jerusalem and does other signs that people are believing, and again, not, not believing in him, but they're coming and attracted to the signs and wonders. And one of those men was Nicodemus, and we talked about him the last couple of weeks, about his interaction with Jesus and how Jesus shared with him man's greatest need for new birth and the love of God that brings about that new birth. 
So Jesus, sometime after this, as, and his disciples have left Jerusalem, and they went out into the surrounding Judean countryside. That's what's meant by that statement there, because Jerusalem is located in that southern part of, of Israel known as Judea. And so, specifically, we're told that his ministry, in, uh, during this undisclosed yet seemingly lengthy period of time, involves baptism. Now, we're going to read next time in John 4, and verse 2, that actually it's not Jesus who is baptizing, but in his disciples who are performing the baptisms on his behalf. By the way, it shows the superiority of Jesus to John that others are baptizing in his name. Jesus was undoubtedly preaching a message of repentance from sin, and he's still foreshadowing his coming work on the cross. And yes, this baptism that Jesus is administering is a preview of Christian baptism, but it's not the same thing that will be instated after Jesus rises from the dead and establishes the church. No, this is another one of those identifications of someone is making of repenting from their sin. And so, Jesus continues then to engage in public ministry. At the beginning of this gospel, we saw Jesus coming onto the scene. He was in relative obscurity, while John the Baptist was prominent, fulfilling his role as the forerunner of the Messiah. But we see in verse 23 that John is still here, and we see what he is doing. It says there, uh, now John was also baptizing in Anon near Salem, because there was much water there. And they, had, and they came and were baptized, for John had not, been thrown into, had not yet been thrown into prison. So John is north of Jesus, continuing his ministry. He continues to baptize those who hear and embrace his message of repentance. Can you imagine what kind of time this is in the land of Israel? I mean, we've heard of great preachers who have been brothers in the past, right? But this, th- th- these guys are not brothers, they're, they're cousins. These are two of the best guys you could have come to hear. Hey, you know, today we're going to hear John, tomorrow we're going to hear Jesus, right? I mean, what an amazing thing. And the countryside must be alive with these two men and the proclamations of, of the coming kingdom of God and, and the need for repentance. It is here that we are informed about John's baptism a little more. I mean, we're told this interesting fact that he baptized in the area where he baptized because there was much water. By the way, just as a side note, this is one of those passages that leads us to conclude that the proper mode of baptism is immersion because of of what's said about where John baptized. And here, we also read an interesting note. In verse 24, did you catch that? It said that John had not yet been thrown in prison. Now, Maybe if this is the first time you ever read this, or one of the first times, you think, well, no, duh, he's baptizing people, right? He's obviously not in prison. You have to understand the historical context, again, of of what's going on. John is writing his gospel under inspiration of the Holy Spirit uh, many years after Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the synoptic gospels, have been written. And when those are written, what you read in, in, in Matthew 4 specifically and, and in Luke chapter 4, you read about the temptation of Jesus. And after the temptation of Jesus, we're told that John the Baptist uh, preaches a, a very hard message against immorality in the life of the ruler there. And he's thrown into prison and eventually he's beheaded. And there's nothing in between. So John knows, you know, his readers are familiar with with those Gospels already, him writing later. So he says, hey, there's a period of time here after Jesus' uh, uh, temptation and his return and and John being thrown in prison that that Jesus and John are ministering at the same time. So it's really a, a, a historical note here to help us understand about when this takes place in the life of Jesus. 
And so here we see that there's an important transition happening that will display the transcendence of who Jesus is and why he came. In verses 25 through 30 today, we see the transition of focus. So there's a transition of ministry. Jesus has transitioned out of Jerusalem into the wilderness to preach and to baptize. John is transitioning his ministry uh, because he's ministering at the same time with Jesus. And now we see the transition of focus that must take place from John to Jesus. And we see that, first of all, there is a perceived problem in verse 25. Then there arose a dispute between some of John's disciples and the Jews about purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who is with you beyond the Jordan, to whom you have testified, behold, he is baptizing, and all are coming to him. So the focus turns once more to John the Baptist, and this will be the, the, one of the last times, probably the last, it'll be the last time here that we see John the Baptist in the Gospel of John. We see that he has given clear witness and testimony as to who Jesus is and what his own role is in relation to Jesus. We saw this in chapter 1 especially. Now as the ministry of Jesus grows, we have a more definitive moment in this transition. And this is occasioned by his, by his disciples' encounter with a Jew and subsequent concern. And I want to make a, just a note here on the translation. Uh, if you go back to the original Greek, um, there's actually a better translation of verse 25 here refers to a Jew and not the Jews. Um, it was a translation decision that was made, um, but, but really from the text you see a, a singular person here. We don't know much about the encounter that takes place, but, but here's this Jew, what we're told is some, some kind of discussion arises about rites of purification. If you understand about the law, I mean, there's, there's things that had to be done, there were these, these rituals that had to be fall, followed, and, and maybe it has something to do with John's baptism and the permanence of such baptism. But whatever the case, it seems that discussion that they had began to stir up in their own thoughts, in their own hearts, things about John and his ministry and his baptism, and, and more specifically, how they relate to Jesus' growing ministry. And there seems to be a subsurface frustration in these disciples. And it's agitated by this interaction they have with this Jew. Now, please understand that up to this point, John has been very popular in the land of Israel. We read in Luke chapter 3 and verse 7, Then he said to the multitudes that came out to be baptized by him, Brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. Notice that word multitudes. It indicates a lot of people, right? Matthew chapter 3, verses 5 through 6. Then Jerusalem, all Judea, and all the region around Jordan went out to him and were baptized by him in the Jordan, confessing their sins. John's message was drawing crowds of people who were listening, and many of those people were being baptized. They were responding to what they heard. And now, with Jesus on the scene, things are beginning to change. Indeed, what is happening is people, the crowds, are beginning to move towards Jesus. His teachings, his signs, and the baptism that he was administering through his disciples. And so, here they come to John, zealous for this man who is their teacher. Zealous for this guy who they have followed as disciples. And we note the sense of resentment present in their words. I mean, did you notice what they said? Rabbi, verse 26, he who was with you beyond the Jordan. Do you think they knew his name? Well, I think they did. But they don't even call him by name, right? Hey, that guy, you remember him? The one who came over there to be baptized by you? Furthermore, they began to to engage in exaggeration and hyperbole. 
Notice what they declare. What do they declare at the end of verse 26? And all are coming to him. Well, obviously not all because there's some people there, right? But they're looking around and what are they seeing? They're seeing that all the people that used to come and all the multitudes, they're not that many anymore. The crowds are beginning to dwindle and instead they're going to see Jesus. They saw Jesus and his disciples as some type of competition. Remember back in John chapter 1, there were two guys who were disciples of John who left to follow Jesus. Do you remember their names? Their names were John, the guy who wrote this book, and Andrew, the best disciple there ever was, right? And I'm not biased. I wonder, and I I think it would be safe to say, these guys probably knew those two guys. I mean, here, two disciples of John had left to follow Jesus. It's almost as as if they viewed Jesus as a threat. They feel that people must make a choice. Hey, you either choose John or you choose Jesus. you got to pick one. Their statements are really, in a way, requesting from their teacher, their rabbi, uh, him to tell them about authority. Hey, who's really in charge? Who should the people be following? In their mind, the answer is, is John. Hey, you need, to, you need to put some things in line here. You need to call these people back. They wished to see their teacher put this newcomer in his proper place. They lacked the proper perspective that was needed to see who Jesus is. And they would see in John a humble, willing servant doing whatever was needed for the kingdom of God, giving proper acquiescence to the king of kings. John goes on to give his disciples the proper perspective. In verse 27, John answered and said, A man can receive nothing unless it has been given to him. From heaven. John saw himself very simply as a man who was not in control. He was not in, a minist- in the ministry of his own calling, but because of God's sovereignty and purpose from the beginning of John's life, that he would have an important role in the plan of God. However, that role would have its end when the Son of God appeared on the scene. That was the way it was set up. That was the way it was supposed to be. John rightly saw himself as subservient to the sovereignty of God, and he submitted himself to God's plan. God's plan was for John to prepare the hearts of God's people to receive the Messiah, and he carried out that job as he was charged to do so. And so he saw his ministry as a gift from the Lord. His opportunity to minister, to preach, to see people repent of sin, it wasn't a right. It wasn't his own, his own life's work or something that he was entitled to. No, it was a gracious gift from his most gracious God. And here's the thing. if We have to understand that everything we have here on this earth is a gift from God. If it is given to us, it is entrusted to us to be used for his honor and his glory. That is true of both the tangible and the intangible. I think when we talk about everything you have is a gift from God, our mind immediately goes to, to, to possessions or money or this or that. But, but that's not the context here. The context here is about the opportunity to preach and to minister to people and to see them come to, to repent of their sins. So it's also true of our time and our talents, our opportunities, that our opportunities to minister to others are given to us by God. Sure, we we leverage things in our lives 
right? That we leverage the earthly things that God has given us to create the heavenly, to, to, to do heavenly things. But that all comes from the same place. It comes from God. He has blessed us with those people in our lives who need us to give them the word of God. Do you understand that that neighbor that you need to share the gospel with, that coworker who doesn't know the Lord, that teammate who needs to see the testimony of your life is a gift from God. You have an opportunity to share the gospel with them. How often do we view it that way? Sometimes they're just the guy who never cuts his grass and says bad things, right? The teammate who really, who really just wants nothing to do with God. No, every one of those people is an opportunity to, from God to, to share with them the things of God. Now, it's not a guarantee that every person you ever go and share the gospel with is going to embrace God. We understand that. But we need to view these things, we need to view these people as souls, as people who have an eternal destiny, as people God has given us the opportunity to invest in. God gives us these wonderful opportunities, and we see John's perspective on the opportunities that God had given him. And here is the thing, any success we enjoy in ministry comes from God, and it's for his glory. You have the opportunity to witness to someone, to share with them the gospel, they come to know the Lord. That's not a notch in the old belt or on the, on the gospel gun. That's praise to God. You have an opportunity to minister to someone who is hurting, who is in need, and you make a, truly make an impact in their life. That's, well, of course, that's what I do. That's all praise to God. You have an opportunity to encourage someone with the word of God. That's all about God. It isn't about us. We read John's own declaration because John, John reminds his disciples that he had given this perspective before. Look what he says in verse 28. You yourselves bear me witness. Okay, you were there, he says, when I said these words, I am not the Christ or the Messiah, but I have been sent before him. We read that encounter in John chapter 1. John had always maintained that position. And he reminded his disciples of that. He had been very clear that he knew his place and his role. And here he maintains it in the face of dwindling numbers of his own ministry. Here's the thing. When the rubber meets the road, that's when you find out the stuff you're made of. It is really easy to say, yep, it's all a gift from God, and I'm humble. And then something happens, and you've got to be humble and admit. Right? And how many of us in that moment, we begin to grasp at those things and say, whoa, 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 whoa. It's a gift from God. All glory and praise to him. When it's forced into action, we find out if it's just talk or what we truly believe. And John, when faced with what was happening, truly lived what he preached and what he claimed to believe. His humility bore itself out. One pastor said it this way, The measure of success is not how many people follow the minister, but how many people follow Christ through that minister. It's not about us. It's all about him. This is true for John. He was pointing people directly to the Son of God in the flesh, and they were listening because they were going to see Jesus. To him, this was the best thing that could ever happen, for it was the plan of God all along. You realize that Paul would face the same problem later on in, in, in ministry. The Apostle Paul would come across this group of people at the church at Corinth. Now, the church at Corinth had a lot of problems. 
Okay, if you read 1 Corinthians, you'll find out that there's a lot of issues that Paul had to deal with. You think that your local Baptist church has issues, you hadn't been to Corinth. And one of the things that they would do, uh, they would proudly line up under these supposed, you know, they're not real, but in their lives, these banners of those Christian leaders they had come to know Christ or been baptized under. Paul tackled this thinking head on in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 12 and 13. Now I say this, that each of you who says, I am of Paul, or I am of Apollos, or I am of Cephas, or I am of Christ. It's very interesting, by the way. You have those who are saying, hey, I, I followed Paul, I followed Apollos, and then you have, or, or Cephas, or Peter, and then you have the snooty ones. Well, I am of Christ, right? Even them, are, even those guys, they're, they're, they're causing divisions. Paul says, is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you, or were you baptized in the name of Paul? 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 5-7, through 7, Who then is Paul? Who is Apollos? But ministers through whom you believed as the Lord gave to each one. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. So then neither, is, neither he who plants is anything, nor he who waters, but God who gives the increase. God is who is most important in our lives. Now, God's servants may be used in wonderful ways in your life. I've had discussions with many of you who talk about, you know, I listen to this pastor or that pastor, or I minister with this person, they really minister to my heart, and God uses that in our lives. But at the end of the day, I would say to you that a person like that who means the most to you is someone who didn't point you to themselves, but they pointed you to Jesus Christ and to God. Those are the people God uses in our lives. We may be encouraged by the preaching of a specific minister or by the teaching or counseling or discipleship of, or more of certain people. But in the end, the most effective ones are those who point us back to God alone. Another author said it this way, ministry is about pointing other people to Jesus. If we miss that, we miss it all. If we surrender that, we've lost. If your ministry and your life is all about you, you've missed the point of life and ministry. So let us not let factions exist in the ministry of God. Let us not get caught up in our own glory, but in God's ministry. And instead, let us be caught up in the glory of God and Jesus Christ. And John recognized his own nothingness compared to Jesus' immense nature. That's where the proper perspective comes. And if we, too, recognize this, our perspective would be greatly increased. John then further illustrated this point for his disciples and he drove, as he drove towards the current position of his own ministry. We see a very picturesque position that he gives from his life. He says in verse 29, he who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. John uses here in one verse what some people would call a type of a parable. It certainly is to us a good picture of how he views his own ministry and the role God had called him to play. He is likening Jesus to the bridegroom who has come to claim his bride. And he equates himself and his ministry to what is called the friend of the bridegroom. Now, to our modern ears and to our modern understanding, we may call something like this the best man okay, in a wedding. But in first century Jewish weddings, this friend of the bridegroom was responsible to oversee many details of the wedding. He served as what would be known as a master of ceremonies for the bridegroom. 
He was even responsible for bringing the bride to the bridegroom to begin the ceremony. But, how, but what happened is, as soon as he took the bride and gave her to the bridegroom, guess who was the focus from then on? The bridegroom, not him. His joy was to, to see them embracing one another and entering into the stage of life together. There's also evidence that according to ancient Mesopotamian law, the friend of the bridegroom was forbidden from marrying the bride, even if the bridegroom rejected her. So the greatest joy of this man was to see his friend marry his bride and see them rejoice in the new life together. And John the Baptist says this is the type of role that he served in the ministry of Jesus. He was not the bridegroom. That's the role of Jesus. He had come, Jesus had come, for his bride, his people. He had come to establish his church through faith in himself. It was not John's role then to be the fulfiller of the promises of God and to call the nation of Israel and eventually all those who place their faith in the Messiah. He wasn't to call those people to himself. He was instead to prepare the people to receive Jesus. And so John says at the end of verse 29, therefore, because the, 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 the role of the friend of the bridegroom is to bring the bride to the bridegroom and, 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 and for them to be together, therefore, this joy of mine is fulfilled. The joy of John was found in watching the people go to Jesus. His job was nearing its completion, and he was not grasping at it, wishing for more time or influence. He instead rejoiced at the voice of Jesus, calling his people unto himself. And so we see the stated position of John's life and ministry in the unfolding plan of God. Because Jesus is the Messiah, and because John's role was to be his, this friend of the bridegroom, it is necessary that John and his ministry decrease while Jesus' own fame and ministry increase. He says in verse 30, he must increase, but I must decrease. And you see that word must, but he must increase. That, that word communicates to us divine necessity. That this was the will of God, determined from the outset of John's ministry, that, hey, one day the Messiah is going to come, and your ministry is going to go away. But that's the way it's supposed to be, because the Messiah is here. When we view ourselves as the center of God's plans, And it's indispensable. We cannot have this view that John has here. If John viewed himself as, well, I mean, God needs me. I'm the guy. Then the complaint that the disciples lodge is going to lodge in his own heart and say, yeah, where are all those people? Right? If you and I view ourselves as indispensable to the plans of God, then when God removes opportunities from our lives, We begin to grasp and hold on and say, well, where did it all go? It's all about me. But it's not about us. It's about him. Here is a man who knew his job. He understood God's plan and his purposes. Therefore, John was rightly settled on what must occur. 
And he truly exhibited biblical humility as he saw himself the way that God saw him. And as John assures his disciples of the necessity and rightness of these things, we now see in the last part of our passage the transcendence of Jesus. We see, first of all, there's five things I want you to see here, okay? The first one is we're going to see his transcendent origin, his transcendent origin. These last six verses draw us to the transcendence of who Jesus is, that he is above all, that he is exceptional in every way. And I do want to say from the outset, there's a little bit of disagreement on the source of these statements. So some believe that John the Baptist is continuing to talk here. And some believe that this is John, through inspiration of the Holy Spirit, John the Apostle, giving some perspective on what has occurred. Either way you take it, it doesn't change the truth, okay? The transcendence of Jesus is seen in several areas. Verse 31, we see his transcendent origin. Let's read there together. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth is earthly and speaks of the earth. He who comes from heaven is above all. So we see that Jesus is said to, be, to, to have come from above. That word, those two words, from above, is the same Greek word that has been used earlier in this passage. When Jesus was talking to Nicodemus, he said to him, you must be born again or born from above. It's the same word. So John is saying that Jesus has, been, has come from above. Just as the new life has heavenly origin, so too does Christ have a heavenly origin. And because he is from above, that places him above all. See, the argument here is this. Those who have earthly origins are limited by our earthly selves. Have you ever felt limited because you are an earthly person? By that I mean you're a person from earth, right? Those of you who maybe are a little more mature in life, you ever felt limited or trapped in the earthly form that you have, right? We, 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 have, we can only do so much. We only have so much authority. We only have so much this or that because we're dependent on God who gives that to us. Even in our redeemed state as Christians, we are so limited here on this earth. But Jesus is omnipotent. By that we mean he is all-powerful. His origin as the only begotten Son of God makes him so. So therefore, everything on earth exists to serve him because of his heavenly divine origin. It is transcendent. The creation is subject to its creator. And as our creator, Jesus' knowledge is also vastly transcendent. So not only does he have transcendent origin, he has a transcendent knowledge. We see in verse 32. And what he has seen and heard, that he testifies, and no one receives his testimony. We see here the transcendent knowledge of Jesus. Have you ever had that, that um, something happen in your life that you weren't there for, but you heard the story from somebody else? Okay, yeah, been there? Okay, now how about this one? The person you talked to wasn't there, but they talked to someone else, and they told you what happened. You ever had that happen? Or the person who talked to someone who talked to someone who talked to someone who was there, right? You, you follow the, okay? Now, you ever had the chance where you talked to someone who talked to someone who was there, and then you went back and compared it with the person who was there, and the stories were totally different, right? Because the details were embellished 
to protect the innocent or to promote the innocent, you know, whatever. What John is saying here, Jesus is no second-hand witness to the things of God. He is the Son of God and God himself. Therefore, his knowledge is transcendent of anyone else. He is the embodiment of wisdom and love. He is the incarnate word. He is testifying of the things of God still today. We read here, and what he has seen and heard, he testifies. That is a present active verb that Jesus continues to testify through the word of God, the things of God. As the writer of Hebrews well said, Hebrews 1, 1 and 2, God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets. Okay, were the prophets a bad thing? No, they gave words and said, thus says the Lord. But were they the Lord? No. So who is better than the prophets? Jesus. Continue on, verse 2, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. What is interesting is the choice God has given to all people. Did you notice that in the second part of verse 32? And no one, what, receives his testimony. Jesus has clearly given the truth through the word of God, but he's given us a responsibility that we must respond to it. And though the testimony of Jesus is superior to all others because of his transcendent knowledge of the things of God, it is not readily received. It is instead rejected by those blinded by sin. Jesus has a transcendent origin. He has a transcendent knowledge. And third, he has a transcendent testimony. Verse 33 He who has received his testimony has certified that God is true. We see here the testimony of those in Jesus who do believe him. Because while in general, as stated in verse 32, the rejection of Jesus is obvious in this world of sin and corruption, there are those who do believe his testimony. This is, what, this is that which they lay hold of, receiving it into their lives. It says there in verse 33, he who received his testimony, that's the idea of you have laid hold, you have taken it to be a part of your life. And they have given, as it were, their seal of approval on these things. And in so doing, all who do this recognize the transcendent of Jesus' testimony and the truth, that God is truth. So understand this, that to reject Jesus is to call God a liar. If you reject Jesus Christ as the only way to heaven, as the Lord and Savior, as the Lord of your life, you have said to God, God, you're a liar. You don't really mean the things that you said. There are a lot of places to turn in our life for meaning and so-called truth today. Have you ever looked around and seen all of the world religions and all of the ideas about where do we find truth? And maybe you scratch your head and say, well, where is the truth? The safest place to find truth is the only place to find truth, and that is in Jesus. This transcendent testimony brings about then the power of salvation, and it shows the power of Jesus. Fourth, we see in these verses the transcendent power of Jesus. Verse 34 For he whom God has sent speaks the word of God, for God does not give the Spirit by measure. Jesus is one with God the Father, yet he is also submissive 
to the will of the Father. This is the way which the Trinity works. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. They, they are one God in three persons. He is one God in three persons, and each acts in an individual role. And so God the Father sent Jesus the Son to be the Savior of the world. We read, it, we read in 1 John 4, 14, and we have seen and testified that the Father has sent the Son as Savior of the world. And that plan of God was fulfilled in Jesus. And throughout the history of Israel, many prophets and judges and leaders had come. You, you can read the, the Old Testament, and the pages are filled with the people who came and did things that God called them to do. Think of all the prophets and the books that are named after those guys and the messages they proclaimed. And think of the judges in the book of Judges that God empowered with his spirit to do great and mighty things. But understand that each one of those was just a man. And so therefore, the Holy Spirit that God had given them was only given to them in measure to do those limited things that God had called them to do. Why are they limited? Because they're sinful people. You and I, even as Christians, we receive the Holy Spirit into our lives. We're limited because we have sin. And on this side of eternity, though we constantly and continue to grow in the Lord, we're we're going to have struggles. But Jesus is different. The Holy Spirit was poured out on him without measure. Therefore, there were no limits to the power of Jesus. He, God incarnate, can do whatever he was asked, whatever was required of him in God's plan. And then that leads us lastly to the last thing we see about Jesus' transcendence. We see his transcendent authority in verses 35 and 36. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. He who believes in the Son has everlasting life, and he who does not believe the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. We see the authority over all things Jesus exercises here as he is transcendent in his origin, his knowledge, his testimony, and his power. This one follows suit that the infinite love between God and the Father, between God the Father and God the Son is clearly evident. And in this love, Jesus has been entrusted with authority over all things. And he has the authority to accomplish all of God's purposes here on earth. Now, the major part of his work was his life and his death and his resurrection to save men from their sins. That is why he came the first time. And since Jesus has transcendent authority, everything goes back to him. The one who believes in the Son, John says, finds everlasting life. The one who rejects him finds not life, but finds, as John puts here, the wrath of God, because the wrath of God is poured out on sin. Understand this. I've said it again. I'll say it. I'll keep saying it. Jesus is not a way to God. Jesus is the way to God. He is the only way. Belief in Jesus is shown here and throughout Scripture. I don't have time to give you the references today, but it is shown throughout Scripture to be obedience to God, followed by obedience to God. You understand that? That, that, that belief in Jesus Christ is obedience to God. 
Rejection of Jesus is disobedience to God and is met with the proper judgment of God. This is true for eternity and true of living for God after salvation. If you have embraced Jesus for salvation from sin, yet you continue to reject what God says about your new life, then you will find yourself at best in stunted spiritual growth. Your peace will be gone. Your prayers will feel like they have been unheard. Your relationships will suffer because this is what happens. We do not walk rightly with our God. We must humbly submit ourselves to God for both eternal peace and everyday life. And John the Baptist gave such incredible witness to Jesus. He knew who Jesus is, or, and, and, and he knew his own role in these things. He knew that he must decrease and that Jesus must increase, and so too must we. For salvation, from sin, for eternal life, you and I cannot find hope in ourselves it can only be found in him. In sanctification, if you know Jesus Christ as your Savior, your life is not about you. It's about him. Our purpose in this life is found in knowing Jesus, obeying him, and living for his glory. And what we see here is that Jesus is exalted. He is the King of kings, the Lord of lords. That He came to earth and He set aside heaven's glory for you. He came to save your soul. He came to give you new life. And He came to be your Lord. Have you found the hope and peace of an eternal relationship with Him? You can walk out of this place today knowing without a doubt that you will live for eternity. And that you will know him personally. What we're talking about, folks, isn't religion. This is a relationship. It's so much greater than religion. John the Baptist was an important figure in the story of Jesus. For he prepared the way for the Messiah in Israel. But he also gave the greatest testimony to Jesus by the way he lived his life. He wasn't someone who just said the words. He lived the truth. He wasn't caught up in his own fame or his desires or wants or interests. He was consumed with honoring God and fulfilling God's plan for his own life. Christian, our lives are the greatest testimonies we can give for God. You and I can say a lot of things. We can have a lot of truth stuffed up here in our heads. And we can give the word of God, and we can teach Sunday school, and we can tell people about how great God is, but if we don't live it out, it doesn't mean anything. Our lives are the testimony of the truth. And so we have to give our lives to God. That preaches easy and lives hard, right? Because we sit here and we say, yep, I'm going to do that. I'm going to go out, I'm going to give everything to God. God, I know what you need me to do. I know what you want me to do. I know. And we drive home. And that one extra car in Beaverton that we have, because we don't have traffic, but that one car in Beaverton cuts you off. And suddenly you ain't living for God anymore, are you? Or you leave this place and you get in a 
what, what spouses call a discussion on the way home. Right? You ever used that code word before? And that testimony's gone. Or you go to work, and everybody's complaining about the boss, or this, or that. And Well, yeah, I'd throw my two cents out. And that testimony's gone. Our lives are the greatest testimony that we have for the glory of God. And God's not looking for perfect people because we're not perfect. He's looking for faithful people. He's looking for people that when you do mess up, you deal with it the right way. That we don't let it pile up and we don't let it stack up because the longer we let it stack up, the worse it gets. We need the humility, like John the Baptist, to give God all the honor in our lives, no matter what we face, no matter what we do. Father, we thank you for this time we've had now to study your word today. Lord, we pray today that you would drive these truths home in our hearts and lives. That you would truly, truly convict us today of sin. Lord, and if we're honest, in and of ourselves, we are, uh, we are very prone to give ourselves a pass. We're very prone to saying it's not a big deal. We're especially prone to saying, well, you should look at so-and-so. But God, it's not about what we've done or not done. It's not about what they've done or not done. It's not about being provoked or not provoked. It's about our relationship with you. We ask today you'd help us to be honest with you. Help us to be honest first on an eternal level. Do we have eternal life in Jesus Christ? Have we trusted in him alone for salvation, for nothing else satisfies and nothing else saves but you alone? And Lord, help us to be, then to be honest on an everyday level. Do we live for you on a consistent basis? Are we tolerating sin in our lives? We know it is wrong. We are convicted of it, but we continue to do it anyway. Lord, would you give us the courage and the boldness to make those things right, to go to that person we have wronged and seek forgiveness, to fall on our knees before you to confess it, to find help for the struggle that we just can't get rid of in our lives, to find accountability, to find a right relationship with you again. Because in so doing, Lord, we can live as clear and open testimonies of the power of God in our lives. That's what we want. We want to live for you. We want to shine for you. We want to give the hope of the gospel to those in darkness. Help us to do that today. In your name we pray. Amen.